Good morning. Welcome to Pastor David Smith's class on the book of Romans. Pastor Smith isn't able to be here with us this morning. I'm filling in on his behalf. This is going to work out well because some years ago I was told by someone who really knows that I have a face for radio. I'm not exactly sure whether that was a compliment or not, but we, we uh, welcome all who are joining us today by KFUO Radio. The lesson that we're going to be looking at is Romans chapter 8. Would you join me in a word of prayer? We give thanks to you, Heavenly Father, through your risen Son, Jesus, that you have adopted us as your children and made us heirs, co-heirs with Christ in his Easter victory. We thank you today that you have given us your Holy Spirit, we pray that as your dear children, we might live according to your Spirit. That we might set our minds on the things of the Spirit. That we might have life through the Spirit who dwells in us. Lord, continue to pour out your Spirit upon us today. That we might read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest your word of truth which is before us. We ask these and all things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Romans chapter 8 is one of the most beautiful and one of the most important chapters in all of Scripture. In the first seven chapters, St. Paul is laying out before us some of the most important doctrines of the faith, clearly explaining to us the doctrine of justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. He talks about the importance of our baptism. And now in, in chapter 8, he begins to tie it all together. And it begins with the words, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, based on everything else that Paul has said to this point, there is no condemnation, no separation from God for those who are in Christ Jesus. One of the great joys of pastoral ministry is teaching the adult information class, where you are introducing people who, in many cases, have never opened a scripture. They don't know how to even find chapter and verse. All they know about God is what they've heard in the media. And their vision of God is an angry God who is putting down all kinds of rules and regulations who is always criticizing and condemning them. And there's always a point in that class, two or three lessons in, where you come to this passage and you lay it on them, and it's like a light goes on. For the very first time in their life, they have a completely view of God, different view of God than they have ever seen before. With those simple words, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For all who have been justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, there is no condemnation. For all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, into His death and resurrection, there is no condemnation. For all who have celebrated Easter as we are still celebrating, the death and resurrection of our Lord for all of us who are Easter people. There's no condemnation. We need to hear that. 
all of us. There is no condemnation, for we are in Christ Jesus. We need to hear that again and again, and we do every time we gather for worship. We need to be reminded who we are. We need to be reminded regularly that we are Easter people. In verses 2 through 13, as, as we heard Pastor Smith say a few weeks ago, it's, it's always clear-cut. It's, it's either or, as St. As Paul lays that out before us. We are either of the flesh or we are of the Spirit. We are either dead or we are alive. We are either an unbeliever or a believer. That's what begins to sink in for those new Christians. As they start thinking about what they had been, what their knowledge of God used to be, and now what's being proclaimed in the gospel to them. They are God's people too. Today we pick up in verses 14 through 17. And follow along as I read. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. One of the things that may have caught your eye right from the beginning is that the word spirit is used a number of times here. And in the ESV language, some of them are capital S's and some of them are lowercase s's. When we're talking about the Spirit of God, it's an interpretation, but ESV always puts that in capitals. When it's talking about the Spirit, when it's talking about our our nature, it's always a lowercase s. But in the Greek language, it's always the same word. And there are no capitals or no, no lowercase letters here. And so we need to be a little bit careful how we interpret the difference between spirit with a capital S and spirit with a lowercase s. He says, all who are led by the Spirit are children of God. Led by the Spirit. I think back to Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and following talks about right after the baptism of Jesus, the Spirit descended upon him in bodily form as a dove. He has the Spirit, and it says clearly that Jesus was led by the Spirit. This is the same word. He was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted by the evil one. So he says, all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. We are guided We are directed, we are enabled to live here and now and hereafter for all eternity by the Holy Spirit. And so we are sons of God. Ladies, don't get concerned here. 
As we'll see, there are two different words for the word being used here, translated as son. But remember, first of all, that this was the way in which the Old Testament often referred to the people of Israel. They were the sons of God, children of God. They were God's own peculiar people. He was their father. They were his children. And that described a unique kind of relationship between the people of Israel and God. It's a, a relationship that's different than any other religion known to man. And you think of another religion in which God is the father and the people are his children. It's always a distant, angry God up there on the mountain somewhere. A God that you can't have a relationship with. A God who is always demanding and inflicting his will on people. But Israel knew God as their father. That's a different kind of relationship. A loving relationship. Caring relationship. Father is always looking after, providing, caring for his people. That's the relationship that you and I have because the Spirit is at work within us. And so, as I said, Paul used two different words here to describe all who are baptized, males and females. They're really synonymous words in the way in which Paul uses them. The Greek has the word techna. And it's used here in verse 16. It describes the natural relationship between a parent and a child. The parent gives birth to the child. The child is uh, owned, operated, loved, cared for by the parent. The other word that St. Paul uses in verse 14 is, is the word huyos. And this is the word that he always used in describing who Jesus is as the Son of God. And here it's, it's talking about the privileges of being a child and an heir. It's, it's the legal word that is often used. It's the status that is applied to a person who is a son of his father. Now Paul had used this kind of imagery many times before. One of the most outstanding ones is in Galatians chapter 4. Verses 5 through 7. There Paul wrote, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you're an heir through God. He's not talking about male-female here. He's talking about the status. He's saying, you're not a slave. This isn't a situation of where you are owned, controlled, dominated by the God that you worship. You're a son. And with that son comes all of the privileges, all the blessings, all the inheritance. Because you're not just a son, you're also an heir. And then Paul explains how this came about. 
He says the Holy Spirit has set us free from the spirit of slavery of sin. And here once again the ESV uses the spirit of slavery with a, a lowercase s. But the Holy Spirit is the one who has delivered us, or received, or has given us, yes. Now, spirit of slavery, those people understood. Slavery was a part of everyday life. Many of them had been slaves in the past, and they knew what a miserable experience that could be. And now he's saying to these people, you are no longer a slave, but you are a son. And because you're a son, you're an heir. And you have all the rights and privileges. Even though... They had not all been slaves. All of them understood the imagery. All of them understood what a miserable experience being a slave was. And in a sense, so do we. We know what it means to be a slave to sin. We know what it is to have sin control us, own us, dominate us drive us to do things that, as Christians, we really don't want to do. We know what it is to be a slave. But Paul is saying, by the Spirit, you're no longer a slave. Spirit doesn't own, the spirit of slavery doesn't own you or control you. You're a child of God. You're an heir. And all of this has happened by adoption. You've been received by the Holy Spirit. It's, it's a passive thing. Think about adoption and a child. What does a child do to become part of the family, to be adopted into the family? A child doesn't do anything. But the parents, out of love and a desire to have a family, out of the goodness of their hearts, they take all the initiative. They do all the work. They receive this child into their family. They make that child their own. St. Paul is saying, you didn't do anything, but the Holy Spirit has done it all for you. So we are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. Once again, he's taking us back to holy baptism. It was in baptism that you and I were adopted as children of God. Going back to the imagery of Israel being the children of God, remember how God blessed them? Remember how God provided for them and cared for them as his people? So are we, even now, the chosen, adopted children of God. That's who we are now. But remember how Pastor Smith kept talking about already, but not yet? Right now we're children of God, but what we're going to be is so much richer and so much fuller. Right now, Paul is going to go on and say, we're children of God right now, but right now we still have to suffer. The rest of this chapter really talks about what that suffering in our lives looks like and why should we as children of God and heirs of all of God's riches still have to suffer. 
But he begins by saying, as children of God, we cry. Really, the, the, the Greek is saying, we are crying, we keep crying. It's an urgent kind of prayer. It's a second person plural. It's, it's not just I cry, but it's we cry. The church cries out. That's the way that Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? Have you ever paid any attention to the Lord's Prayer? You can't be selfish and pray the Lord's Prayer because you never say, Lord, my Lord, my God, my Father, give me this day, bless me, forgive me. But it's always plural. And that's the same way that Paul is talking about prayer here. We, as the people of God, keep crying out, Abba. Father. The word Abba is Aramaic. It's the sound a little child would make crawling up into daddy's lap. Papa. Dada. That's the way that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Abba. The father which follows is, is the Greek word but it's, he's trying to make it clear the, the nature of this relationship as a child of God. It's not a scary thing. But we as little children can crawl up into the lap of our Heavenly Father and we can share with Him the silliest little things, the most important things. We can share everything with our Father. That's a different kind of relationship than the relationship between a slave and his master. A slave goes in on bended knee, the slave goes in begging. No, we're just like children talking to our father, Abba, and we lay it out before him. How do we know that we can pray like this? Doesn't God require special words? Doesn't God require fancy words? Theological words? Does God get the very language that we use as human beings down here on earth? Oftentimes I, I hear radio preachers um, with great faces talking about are saying their prayers and it's, it's this long string of words describing God. Holy, almighty, everlasting, eternal, on and on and on before they finally get down to the point where they say, I'm hurting. Lord, help me. Paul is saying what Jesus said. If you've got a concern, just crawl into your daddy's lap. And lay it before him in simple, ordinary words. How do we know that we can pray like that? because we've got the Spirit. He continues the, the discussion in verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ provided, if indeed we suffer with Him, in order that we may be also glorified with Him. Notice the word for, with is used four times in this section. With, 
We bear, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit. And then it goes on, we're heirs with Christ, we suffer with Christ, we will be glorified with Christ. These are unique words, they're compound words in the Greek language. Paul uses them in verse 6, and he used, uh, chapter 6, he also connects it in chapter 8 later on. But these are unique words connecting us with the Spirit. And so he says, the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit. How do we know that we can call God Abba? Because the Spirit is bearing witness with our spirit. And remember the importance in, in Old Testament justice that there always be two witnesses? Our spirit is bearing witness that we can call God Abba. But the Holy Spirit is also bearing witness with our spirit, two witnesses, we can call God Father. He is bearing witness that we are children of God. He constantly reminds us that we are heirs. Children of God, both genders, with all the blessings and all the privileges of family life. Now let's talk about verse 17 and, and the reminder that if you're a child, then you're also an heir. Heirs of God and a co-heir with Christ. Once again, Paul takes us back to chapter 4 of Romans, where he spends a great deal of time talking about Abraham as our father. And remember, God made this covenant with Abraham. Leave your homeland, your father, your kindred, everything that's familiar to you, Go to the land that I will show you, and I will give you that land, and I will bless you and your descendants forever, and from your descendant, your seed, I will raise up one who will be a blessing to all nations. And Abraham went, and he raised Isaac, and Isaac raised Jacob. And generation after generation, they held on to this covenant, this promise of God. They were heirs, one generation after another. St. Paul is saying the same thing to us. We're part of the family. Generation after generation of Christian people, we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We're siblings of Lord Jesus. Everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to us. Everything that happened on Easter is ours. Jesus rose. He conquered sin. It's done. He conquered death. He conquered the grave. It's all yours. You're an heir because you're a co-heir with Jesus and everything that belongs to Him belongs to you. That's what it means to be an Easter person. You live in that victory day after day. Sin, death, hell, defeated. All the joy, all the hope, all the glory of that Easter morning belongs to you. What does that say about the way that we live our lives every day? 
What happens to all the sorrow and the gloom? What happens in the midst of all the suffering of this world? Paul is setting us up for what's about to happen. And so he says, you're children, you are heir, you are co-heir with Jesus, and you will be glorified with Christ if indeed you suffer with him. So the glory is still to come. We can live our lives confidently, knowing there's no condemnation. There's no uncertainty. Our future, our glory isn't depending on anything we have to do. We live in this hope. The hope that our Savior is going to return, and when he comes, we'll be glorified with him. But then you got this sticker here. Why did he put this in? We will be glorified with Christ if indeed we are suffering with him. The word if there sounds conditional, doesn't it? We'll we'll be glorified with him only if, only if we suffer with him. Our inheritance is sure only if we suffer with him. The word here translated if really should be translated since. We are heirs and we will be glorified since we are suffering with him. It's happening to us now. St. Paul says we can expect it to happen. And it's not a sign of God's anger. It's not a sign of God's abandonment. It's not God punishing us. It's not that we go off seeking suffering, but we bear it as God allows it to happen to us. So what about the sufferings of this present time? What about the sin and suffering of the world? What about all the tragedies? What about this crazy pandemic? What about the sin in our lives? What about the consequences of sin in the world around us? What about the suffering that we see with us every day? So Paul begins to lay out before us this theme. Present suffering and future glory. He's really telling us how we Christians are to live in this world, how how we're to view suffering, how we're to endure suffering, how we're to overcome suffering. But notice he says, we're suffering with Christ. With Christ, not for Christ. Some of the suffering in our lives is just general. It happens because of the evil in the world. Some of the suffering that we do is is because we are Christians and and we can expect the the trouble that comes into our lives because we're Christians. Some of it is persecution for being Christian. How are we as Christians to look at that? In verse 18, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's about to be revealed to us. It's a personal thing. And, and remember in the opening verses 2 through 13, 
Paul began to use the word I, and here once again he returns to that I, I consider. For Paul it was a very personal thing. He suffered. He suffered for the sake of the gospel. He suffered because of the evil in the world around him. He, he suffered all the shipwrecks and all the beatings and all the things that he had to endure because he was a Christian and because there were bad things going on in the world. But he says, I consider, and the word consider here is the, the same word that he's used many times about counting and crediting. And the, the image that he lays before us is a ledger. And on the one side of the ledger, there are the, the sufferings of this present time. You might call that the debit column. On the one side, there's the sorrow, the hunger, the poverty, the pandemic, the persecution. And on the other side of it, in the other column, the, the credit column, there's the glory that's about to be revealed. This glory is about to be revealed. It is eminent. It is certain. It's going to be revealed. Nothing like this has ever been known before. It's the glory that is coming when our Lord Jesus returns. And it's our hope that we will be glorified with Him. That's off in the future. And so Paul is painting a broad picture before us and he says, this isn't worth comparing with this. You got this suffering, this sorrow, this pain, this trouble in this world. But it's not worth comparing to what God is about to do. Something you've never seen, something you've never imagined, but God is about to do it for you. Put all suffering into one of those two, put, put all of, of life into one of those two columns. You're going to focus on this column, you're going to focus on this column. Think of how that might change the way we look at life. How much time do we spend in this column? Talking about the pain, the suffering, the sorrow. How much time do we dwell on this column? A glory that's about to be revealed to us in Christ Jesus. Let's pause for a second. He's got a whole lot more to say, but any questions or thoughts at this point? Yeah. Okay. It's not, yes. Right. Right. Yep. All right, in some translations of the, of the verse we were just looking at, it says, provided that we suffer with Christ Jesus. That's not a good um, descriptive word. It's really since we suffer with Jesus. Other thoughts? Well, you know, we're not the only ones who are suffering. He continues in verses 19 through 22. All of creation is suffering. Verse 19, For, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. It says creation waits. Paul is, is using a, a, a way of understanding. He's personifying creation, personalizing it. The Psalms do this all the time, making, making creation a person. And so he's saying creation is waiting. And now he's not just talking about people. He's talking about all creation, birds, fish, land, animals, sun, moon, stars, all of creation, all that God has made, is waiting. The word here is an eager longing, anxiously waiting, expecting something to happen. All of creation is expecting something big from God. It's waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Somehow, all of creation is looking forward to that last day. When the true sons of God are going to be revealed. When all that's gone on in this world is going to be made known plainly. We're going to get it. Creation is going to get it. All together is going to celebrate as God reveals who are His and who are not His own. As God reveals to us His plan and lays it out fully and opens our eyes so that we can understand it all. All of creation is involved in this waiting and expecting because, he says, creation was subjected to futility. Was subjected. By whom? Did God do this to creation or did man do this to creation? There are those ecologists today who want to blame the troubles of the world all on man and say it's all our fault. But what he's really saying here is it was God who subjected creation to this futility. And he takes us back to Genesis chapter 3. In cursing the man, God said... Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat plants of the field. All creation suffered because mankind had fallen into sin. Creation wasn't party to it. Creation didn't sin. Mankind sinned, but creation was drawn into the curse. We continue in, in our time to abuse God's beautiful creation, no doubt about that. I don't want to deny that some of creation's problems are caused by humankind. Certainly, Christians are conservationists and ecologists, and we care about God's creation. But... This verse ought to reveal to us just how serious our sin really is. 
because mankind sinned, all creation suffers. Because you and I sin, the world around us today is suffering. Verse 20 says creation was subjected in hope. And that's, that's the neat thing. Remember as God was laying this curse on, on Adam? Cursed is the ground because of you, but... And he goes on to describe how man would toil and work. And, and, but here, remember, he goes on in, in Genesis 3, verse 15. As he curses the woman, he said, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Creation not only suffers with mankind, but creation also participates in the blessing of mankind, the salvation of mankind. In the very beginning, God cursed the ground because of man, but God also promised man a savior. And God promised creation a savior through the one man, Adam, and his descendants. Verse 21 says, Creation will be set free from the bondage to corruption. Other translation says creation will be freed into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, the curse is going to be removed. When Jesus comes again and he raises up all mankind and he perfects us Christians, he will likewise perfect all of his creation. The book of Revelation describes what that's going to be like. John saw a new heaven and a new earth. No longer the place of sin, but now the home of righteousness. This new creation that God is going to, to raise up will, will be better than anything that we have ever imagined. No longer corrupted by sin. No longer having to pull weeds. No longer thorns and thistles. No longer toil. But all of creation as God intended it to be from the very beginning. Mankind fell into sin and all creation suffers. Jesus comes again. All mankind, all Christians, all heirs, all children of God will be perfected. Creation will be perfected along with it. Oh, how I wish I had more details to share with you about what that new creation is going to be looking like. It's going to be everything God originally meant creation to be. But in the meantime, already, I mean, not yet, that's still to come, but already creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. So even now creation is suffering and creation is groaning because of the sin in the world. But he's kind of sneaky here. As he describes the groaning that's going on as the pains of childbirth. I only had the opportunity to witness three children being born. But, but there is all that anxiety of the labor pain. And that intense pain that happens just before the child is born. And after the birth, there is that great joy that happens. I think that's what Paul is laying out. 
He's saying we're in the the pains of childbirth right now. There's the anxiety about all the terrible things that are happening to creation right now. And it's going to get a whole lot worse. There's going to be this pain of childbirth. But there's this hope. There's this joy because of what's going to be. Already, but not yet. Maybe we ought to stop and talk about that. Questions? Comments to make? Yeah. Right. The the certainty is God has a plan. Everything that is happening is according to God's plan. And as, as children of God... We can take whatever it is and crawl up into the lap of our Father and pray, Abba, Father, we don't know what your will is. We don't know what the plan is. But Abba, Father, take care of us in the midst of all of this. Other thoughts? Well, let's go on with verse 23 then. Not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul takes us back to verse 18. He's talking about the sufferings of this present time, not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed. And so he makes this comparison again. Not only, but also. Not yet, but still to come. He's speaking about believers here. He's talking about sons and heirs, and he says, we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit. Remember what first fruits were in the Old Testament. On the day of Pentecost, which was a harvest festival, the people would go out into the fields and they would gather up the first part of their harvest. Supposedly the ripest the best, the purest. And on Pentecost, they would take it and offer it to God as their sacrifice. And it was like a a way of saying thank you to God, but it was also like the down payment, the guarantee. God, I'm bringing you the first and the best because I know you're going to provide this bountiful harvest and I'm laying it before you, but... When the full harvest comes in, we're going to have an offering like you can't imagine. It's going to be great. And so they lived with this joyful giving, a guarantee, the certainty that it's all going to happen. Well, that's what Paul is talking about here. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. God has made this down payment. God has taken the very best. And He's given it to us. He's given us His Holy Spirit. And because God has given us the down payment, God has given us the first fruits, it assures us that more than we can ever imagine is going to come. Here's our hope. So much more when Jesus comes again. In the future, but right now, we groan inwardly. As we wait for God's plan to unfold, we wait eagerly. The way of, of saying, 
we grow impatient. We're, we're waiting eagerly, but not really. And, and we're groaning as we wait for all of this to be revealed. We can't imagine yet what it's going to be like. But we groan. Doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't that sound like us for the last year? Groaning. Groaning about the sufferings of our present age. Troubled, fearful about our health and our finances and our safety and our neighborhoods and our communities and our country and our future. We groan. We groan inwardly. In other words, we've complained. And we wondered if God is really with us. Does God know how we're suffering? Does he have any clue how tired we are of wearing these stupid masks? Does God know that there are those of us who are getting sick and dying? Does God care that our economy is, has been disrupted? Does God care about the troubles in our lives today? We wait eagerly, but we're groaning. We're waiting for all of this to happen. All of this glory to be revealed. In the meantime, we got all of this suffering going on. And as we just pointed out, the real issue here is, what is God's plan? What is God's will? Paul has already laid that out. We've been adopted as the children of God. We have all the rights and privileges of the children of God. It's not yet ours. We aren't fully experiencing what it means to be adopted children of God. But we know that we are adopted children. We are co-heirs with Christ. And here he talks about the redemption of our bodies. That's what God's plan is. Notice it doesn't say redemption from our bodies but the redemption of our body. He's talking about Easter again. What does Easter really mean? Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead. It was the very same body. It bore the marks of the nails in His hands and feet and His side. Thomas needed to put his fingers there, put his hand into the side. It was the body of Jesus physically, that rose from the dead. But it was a body that was suited for all eternity. A body that could pass through walls or doors without unlocking them. A body that could be here with them and then out on the seashore with them and appear when He wanted to appear. It was a spiritual body suited for eternity. In 1 Corinthians 15, that wonderful resurrection chapter... Paul says, you know, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, our faith is futile. If all of this didn't happen, we're of most people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ did rise from the dead. The first fruits, there's a word we just used, first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The guarantee, the down payment that more and more are going to follow 
1 Corinthians 15, verse 42 and 44. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Notice it doesn't say when you rise again on the last day, you're going to be a, a ghost, a spirit. Well, it's going to be your body that rises from the dead. Not a spirit, but a spiritual body. One like Jesus' after Easter, one that is suited for all eternity. Wow, does that change the way we look at a lot of things, but especially when it comes to the subject of death. What, it, what, what we mean when we talk about burying the body in the ground. You know, there are some people who say, the body's not important. You dispose of the body, it, it doesn't matter. What do we do? We put it into a, a vault, which says... We're putting into it a safe. We mark that body once again with the sign of the cross in the hope of the resurrection on the last day when Jesus comes again in glory. That body is important because that body is going to be raised. Imperishable. Perfected. Suited for eternity. To live in all of this glory with our Lord and Savior Jesus. Wow, what Paul is saying to us today as Easter people is celebrate. Celebrate who you are, what God has done for you. There is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. You have the guarantee, the down payment of life in glory with God. And so whatever is happening in the world around you today, you can endure it. You can overcome it. You can live with hope. What's to come? You are Easter people. Any thoughts on that? This is a great chapter, a comforting pa passage of Scripture for us. And well, maybe it's time for us to quit. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, be and abide with you always. Amen.